This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. At 10.10 a.m. on February 28th, 2005... A single-engine de Havilland Beaver seaplane took off over the Campbell River. The pilot, Arnold Feast, was flying from the Taiyi Spit on Vancouver Island across the Strait of Georgia. His destination, a remote logging camp on mainland British Columbia. On board were four loggers, brothers Trevor and Doug DeCock, and their co-workers Fabian Bedard and David Stevens. Minutes into their journey, the engine went haywire. The plane plummeted towards the water, smashing through its surface. The force ripped the engine from its frame. Incredibly, all passengers were still conscious, but the plane was sinking fast. They tore their seatbelts off, fastened life preservers, and escaped the cabin just in time to watch the plane sink to the bottom of the Salish Sea. But the ocean water was a bitter 50 degrees. The closest body of land was Quadra Island, miles from the crash. Though their limbs were tired and bruised, the five had no choice but to try to swim to shore. Tragically, none of them made it. After the crash, the victims' families did everything they could to recover the remains of their loved ones, but to no avail. However, three years into their search, a bizarre discovery suggested the loggers' fate. About 60 miles southeast of the crash site on Jedediah Island, a 12-year-old girl found a washed-up sneaker. Inside were the skeletal remains of a human foot. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our final episode on the bizarre phenomenon of the Pacific Northwest feet. Between 2007 and 2020, a total of 21 human feet have washed up on beaches throughout the Pacific Northwest. 15 were discovered in Canada and six in the United States. Last week, we provided a rundown of where, when, and how each foot was found. Officials claimed the phenomenon was due to a natural disarticulation. That is, after months or years in the ocean, the feet slowly separated from drowned bodies. But for a large sector of the public, this straightforward explanation was a difficult pill to swallow. This week, we'll investigate some alternative explanations. Some suggest a 2005 plane crash could account for some of the feet. Others attribute them to the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004. Still others see the feet as a warning, a product of gang intimidation. And there are those who believe it was the work of a serial killer, one that may still be at large. A rotting, disembodied foot on the beach may sound like a scene from a Hollywood horror film. But in this story, gore is not the focus. It's the cause of it. There are many looming questions. No one could answer why the feet first appeared in 2007, or how they concentrated in such a small area. But more importantly, no one could say where the body parts had come from, let alone who they belonged to. The simplest theory suggests the feet come from victims of accidents at sea, boats swallowed in storms, or sole swimmers lost in fishing or diving accidents. Some even wondered if the feet had belonged to the casualties of a plane crash, particularly one crash off the coast of Quadra Island back in 2005, which resulted in the deaths of Trevor DeCock, Doug DeCock, Fabian Bedard, and David Stevens. Located at the northern end of the Strait of Georgia, Quadra Island sits between Vancouver Island and mainland British Columbia. It was there three hours after the seaplane took off on February 28, 2005, that a man thought he heard a faint cry for help. Alarmed, he ran down to the beach to investigate. When he reached the sand, he scanned the coastline and the horizon, but saw nothing. The crying sound was gone. All that remained was the peaceful crashing of waves. The man assumed it must have been children playing a game, and he returned to chopping his pile of firewood. Kirsten Stevens, the wife of one of the victims, told the Vancouver son that she believes the sound the man heard was her husband. If he had gotten close enough to shore, he would certainly have suffered hypothermia and be completely out of energy. The faint sounds could have been his final calls for help. This helped guide the local authorities' search for the victims' remains. They deployed six helicopters, four aircrafts, and two military ships. Despite their efforts, searchers recovered nothing. Kevin DeCock, brother to Trevor and Doug, said it was hard to stomach the fact that his brothers were lying at the bottom of the sea. He felt they needed to be found, their bodies put to rest, He needed some type of closure to the tragedy. 
so Kevin decided to take on the investigation himself. Despite reports that the engine was making an odd sound before takeoff, the company that operated the seaplane claimed no responsibility. If the victims' families wanted to prove otherwise, they needed to find what was left of the plane. For two years, Kevin searched the strait. He'd drag a large cable through the water where he suspected the seaplane might have sunk, hoping to catch the plane's fuselage. He didn't seem to have any luck. But in the summer of 2007, when decaying human feet started washing ashore near the crash site, Kevin believed he'd finally caught a break. He also had a suspicion that he may have had a hand in the bizarre phenomenon. Two weeks earlier, he thought his cable had dislodged something significant. He wasn't able to pull anything up, yet it stuck with him. Kevin didn't share this news with anyone. Authorities also saw a plausible link between the crash and the disembodied feet. They asked Kevin and the other families to provide DNA samples of the victims so they could test it against the washed-up feet. After all, positive identification would mean closure for the victims' families. It would give officials a timeline for when these feet first entered the water. But maybe it could also offer clues about the rest of the mysterious feet. If the feet could be positively identified, forensic pathologists and oceanic scientists could better understand some of the outstanding questions in the case. They could have mapped the path these feet were taking. They could better understand the time frames. Unfortunately, not a single one of the dismembered feet found in 2007 matched any of the 2005 plane crash victims' DNA. But with each new foot new hope would arise, and then it would be deflated again by the coroner's call. Perhaps the most disheartening moment came when the sixth foot was located. It was found on June 18, 2008, in the Taiyi Spit, the same location the plane had departed from. When she learned a new foot had been found, Kirsten Stevens rushed to the site. This evidence was so close to the area where her husband David's plane had taken off. Kirsten had clung desperately to any hope that her husband's body might be found. She prayed that this finally was the closure she was seeking. But unfortunately, the foot found on the Taiyi spit was not David's. In fact, this foot wasn't even human. It was a tasteless hoax a skeletonized animal paw stuffed into a shoe. Not only did it waste authorities' time and money, it crushed Kirsten's hopes. Since 2005, DNA of the Quadra crash victims has been tested against all of the washed-up feet, and none were a match. But even if they did match, the crash would only account for 10 feet, and the shores of the Pacific Northwest have seen 21. Which is why our second theory might offer a better explanation. On December 26, 2004, a massive earthquake shook the west coast of northern Sumatra in Indonesia. It registered at a whopping 9.3 on the Richter scale. The energy released by an earthquake of that magnitude is equivalent to over 1,500 times that of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. 
What followed was destruction on an insurmountable scale. Tsunami waves climbed up to 100 feet in the air. When these mountains of water struck land, they killed more than 225,000 people in 14 different countries. Most of their bodies were never found. In 2010, Canadian author Shane Lambert was the first to connect the tsunami with the feet found in the Pacific Northwest. Shane claimed, in my opinion, some of the feet belonged to missing victims of the Asian tsunami from 2004, and their feet were just floating on the ocean currents until they got caught up in the Pacific trade winds. Shane suggested that marine life such as sharks, crabs, and other creatures would likely dismember the bodies that ended up in the Pacific Ocean. However, they would not even attempt to digest a victim's sneakers. Which would explain the preservation of the victim's feet as well. With rubber and man-made materials protecting them, the feet would have traveled throughout the Pacific with the rest of the debris taken by the tsunami. Lambert claimed that washed-up sneakers were likely all over the western coastline, but they were primarily found around Vancouver because the local media had made it a story. Only then were citizens curious enough to start inspecting the washed-up shoes in the first place. As fascinating as that scenario might sound, it has many problems. Over the last 13 years, DNA testing has identified half of the skeletal remains. None of those feet had traveled all the way from Indonesia. But while some people were looking for answers in plane crashes and natural disasters, others were asking a darker question. Could these be the feet of murder victims? Coming up, we'll explore if the disarticulated feet were connected to a bloody underground network. The Smiley Face Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Now back to the story. When mysterious disembodied feet began surfacing on North American shorelines in 2007, police were adamant that it was not tied to criminal activity. But Corporal Gary Cox of the Oceanside Royal Canadian Mounted Police believed something more sinister was happening. He examined his logic to the Vancouver Sun in August 2007, saying, finding one foot is like a million to one odds, but to find two is crazy. Similarly, forensics consultant Mark Mendelssohn didn't believe all 21 feet could be attributed to accidents or suicides. Mendelssohn stated, 
Until you can show me something pathologically concrete that this is a natural separation of the foot from a body, then I'm saying you've got to think dirty. Mendelssohn also struggled with the similarities of each case. He didn't believe that there was a sudden influx of people jumping off bridges or drowning in running shoes. And these tragedies certainly weren't confined to the Pacific Northwest area. Joining Cox and Mendelssohn was the anonymous man who discovered the fifth shoe on Westham Island. He told The Guardian he suspected an insidious origin for the feet. The man thought two explanations were likely. One, criminals were disposing of victims' bodies by tying their feet to a heavy object and sinking the corpse to the bottom of the sea. After some time, the combination of ties and water would wear away the victim's ankles and the rubber shoe would float back up, separate from the rest of the sunken corpse. Or two, human traffickers had lost a container of bodies and maybe the feet had begun to just, quote, pop off. While concluding his talk with the Guardian, the anonymous man nodded towards the Vancouver coast and added, there's a lot of stuff that goes on over there. That stuff he referred to was the organized crime activity that has long plagued the Lower Mainland. And that brings us to our next theory, that the mystery of the floating feet could be explained by local gangs. In 2011, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit of British Columbia released a report documenting the most active and dangerous gangs in British Columbia. Their list included the violent drug trafficking organization known as the Red Scorpion, the multi-ethnic gang known as the United Nations, and the newest formed street gang, the Independent Soldiers. The Italian Mafia, or La Cosa Nostra, also operated out of southwestern Canada at the time, with the most powerful family in the area being the Rizzuto Mafia family. And Chinese youth gangs are also rumored in the region. Their more sophisticated groups are organized across the Pacific by senior Hong Kong triad leaders. They allegedly deal in prostitution, marijuana growing, heroin imports, and extortion. There was also a known presence of motorcycle gangs, such as the Hells Angels, the Rock Machine, the Outlaws, and Satan's Choice. These groups were not only major drug suppliers to the region, but they also participated in prostitution and contract killing. Considering hits, power grabs, and territory wars, gang activity provides a seemingly clear explanation for the uptick of bodies inhabiting the Pacific Northwest's waters. However, police investigated the backgrounds of each known victim. They've stated they have no reason to suspect these people were involved in criminal or gang activity. There's always the possibility of bystanders getting killed during gang warfare, or that the gang-related deaths account for mostly unidentified victims. But given the number, it seems unlikely that this explains all 21 feet. Perhaps the feet belong to the victims of a different type of violent criminal, like serial killers. After the 14th foot was found in December of 2011, lawyer and crime author Michael Slade noted on CTV News, we also have to consider that this could be a serial killer, somebody who right now is underneath the radar. 
that has to still be on the table. And with good reason. In 2007, the University of Connecticut released a study titled Male Serial Homicide, The Influence of Cultural and Structural Variables. In plain English, the study was aimed at understanding what factors created serial killers. They found that growing up in urban areas in single-parent households or growing up with divorced parents had some correlation. But they also found that the northwestern United States happened to produce more killers per capita than any other region. Last episode, we briefly mentioned the unfortunate stretch of land known as the Highway of Tears. Beginning in the 1970s, this corridor of Highway 16 has been the location of a highly suspicious amount of murders and disappearances. And it's possible that some of these people wound up in the Pacific. However, looking at the profiles of the feet, it seems like a stretch. The Highway of Tears disproportionately affects indigenous peoples, known as Canada's First Nations. But none of the remains so far have been identified as First Nation citizens. It's more likely that systemic racism is to blame for the unsolved disappearances in that area, rather than a sole murderer. However, there is one serial killer who, while not limited to the region, does have a calling card that might explain the floating feet. For years, the serial killer theory was largely written off. But in 2019, investigative journalist Sandra Thomas came to a startling conclusion. There was a connection between missing people in British Columbia and a series of murders committed by a group called the Smiley Face Killers. Thomas was a reporter for the twice-weekly newspaper, The Vancouver Courier. She didn't think much about the feet when they first started appearing in 2007. At the time, she was more concerned with a different pattern. Young men disappearing in Vancouver. The first missing persons case that caught Sandra's eye was Brian Bromberger. Bromberger, a 17-year-old, disappeared the evening of June 1st, 2007, from the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby. He was last seen leaving his friend's house. The morning after, his car was found not far from his home, unlocked, with the lights still on. Sandra told Outside Magazine, he just vanished. By itself, this was not an earth-shaking event. Disappearances happen far more frequently than one might assume. But when John Kaler, Derek Kelly, and Kellen McKelvey also disappeared within the span of a few weeks, Sandra became alarmed. Further investigation revealed that over the previous four years, almost two dozen college-aged men, with no previous histories of mental illness or distress, had gone missing in southwest British Columbia. According to Sandra, they were all apparently happy and healthy before they vanished. When Sandra looked deeper into the missing persons case, she started to see the edges of an even bigger story. These missing people were in the right area, the right gender, the right age, and even had the right years of sneakers to match up to the Pacific Northwest feet. If it was a coincidence, it was a big one. And Sandra also saw possible connections to a third narrative, 
one that extended well beyond the Pacific Northwest coastline, the smiley face Kellers, or Killer. The connection was first formally presented by retired New York City detectives Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duarte, as well as Dr. Lee Gilbertson, a criminal justice professor at Cloud State University in Minnesota. At first, they believed that each of these men had drowned. But later, that theory escalated, suggesting that the deceased may have been murdered by a serial killer or a group of serial killers, and subsequently had their bodies staged to resemble an accidental drowning. The killer or killers likely murdered 35 or more college-aged men over the last two decades. The alleged victims were most often white, college-aged males who were last seen intoxicated, leaving bars alone after a night of revelry, and may each have been sporting a pair of sneakers. But what's even more unsettling is that the murderous gang is best known for their macabre calling card, a spray-painted smiley face somewhere near the scene of the crime. And once she began investigating, Sandra was tormented by the prospect that they may have been watching her. One of Sandra's more frightening experiences came after she started giving interviews about her investigation. Sandra recalled, The day after my first story came out, a foot was found near the Massey Tunnel. And again on June 16th, after I was on the radio discussing the missing men, another foot washed up. When asked if she thought the killer or killers were sending her a message, Sandra said she couldn't be sure, but she was terrified. The feet they found had mostly been male. They had almost all been wearing running shoes, which lined up with the idea that all of the smiley face victims had been healthy. And most importantly, their remains were found in the water, the primary modus operandi for the supposed smiley face killers. It's deeply chilling. However, there has never been any direct correlation between these crimes and the smiley face killers. In fact, no one has ever been charged in connection to these drownings or the elusive gang itself. Some even reject the notion that the smiley face killers exist at all. Considering the bodies that have been found, there's no evidence to suggest the drownings weren't simply drunken accidents. And a smiley face is an extremely common form of graffiti. They pop up in cities everywhere, and this could be another coincidence, a supposed pattern where there is none. While it's tragic that so many college-aged males may have drowned across the United States, it seems more likely that alcohol is the real killer. That could have been the end of it. But in 2016, scientists made a breakthrough discovery in the mysterious case. However, the methods the scientists used were more gruesome than any of the theories we've discussed so far. Coming up, scientists test a new hypothesis to solve the severed foot mystery. Now, back to the story. The theories behind the disarticulated Pacific Northwest feet range from accidents and disasters to street gangs and bloodthirsty killers. But none of those theories have been able to satisfy all of the questions surrounding the case, unless the police were right. 
and this is simply a naturally occurring event. The mysterious feet are normal. Dr. Kathy Taylor, a forensic anthropologist at the King County Medical Examiner's Office, explains that finding dead bodies in the ocean is actually quite common. Suicides and drownings happen frequently. The CDC claims that between 2005 and 2014, an average of 3,536 unintentional drownings happened in the U.S. alone, meaning foul play isn't necessarily the cause. In the 13 years since this all started, Canadian authorities have been able to positively identify 10 of the 15 disarticulated feet found on their nation's shores, belonging to eight different people. Most of the identified remains were tied back to victims who suffered from depression or other mental health conditions. This may not be as salacious as the other theories we've presented, but it does make it highly likely that the unidentified remains were victims of suicide or accidents. Even assuming that the unidentified victims follow a similar profile to those who have been found, we're still left with another mystery. The fact that it's feet, and only feet, washing ashore. Forensics researcher Gail Anderson of Simon Fraser University in British Columbia set out to conduct an experiment in hopes of answering that very question. First, Gail needed to replicate a human body floating in the Strait of Georgia off the coast of Vancouver. To achieve this, she needed a mass of decaying flesh that was roughly the size of a human torso, had no fur, and a gut that housed similar bacteria. So Gail started submerging pig carcasses in the Salish Sea. She used underwater cameras to document the results. Previous studies had reported that human bodies could potentially last for weeks, even months, once submerged. However, Gail's 2016 study found that this time frame was too generous. She concluded that well-oxygenated waters, like those in the Strait of Georgia, support a vast array of hungry aquatic life. Videos on Simon Fraser's university's website show how sea creatures were able to completely skeletonize a carcass in less than four days. But then there were the bodies pulled out quickly, those who looked like victims of a violent struggle. Gail explained, Often, when we've found a body in the water, it looks like the guy has been through a terrible fight. His knuckles can be all ripped up. His face can be ripped off. Your first thought is, my God, this guy's been through a hell of a beating. She says that the grisly appearance is likely caused by waves, cheese grating the body against rocks on the bottom of the seafloor. That could lay the serial killer theory to rest, but that doesn't quite explain the single floating appendage. Well, as Gail found, skeletal systems left submerged will separate as tendons and joints actually disintegrate. Barb McClintock, who worked in the Vancouver Island Coroner's Office, explains that this is why they ruled out foul play. She explained, Forensic anthropologists can really be sure whether there's any trauma, whether there's any tool marks on them and none of them had anything like that. All the evidence is pointed to just this natural articulation process. And as for why it's only feet that ended up on the beach and not naturally separated hands or skulls, 
that comes down to sneaker technology. One of the foremost experts in that unique field is retired oceanographer turned beachcomber Curtis Ebbesmeyer, who wrote a book about flotsam and jetsam entitled Flotsometrics and the Floating World. Ebbesmeyer took an interest in floating sneakers when five containers full of Nike shoes rolled off a ship in Alaska. That was 80,000 Nikes now floating in the Pacific Ocean. Ebbesmeyer noticed that the sneakers were floating sole up, and this could actually protect whatever was inside, say a disembodied foot, from the pecks of hungry birds. This also explains why the shoes started showing up in 2007. Two years earlier, the footwear industry made a significant change in the materials they used. They changed from polyurethane midsoles to ethylene vinyl acetate. This material reduced the cost, but more importantly, it reduced the weight of each shoe, making the sneakers more buoyant than ever before. A lost shoe from 2005 would be much more likely to float than a lost shoe from 2001. This made the probability of Pacific Northwest feet findings much higher and certainly accounts for a spike, if not the start. Now, the only question left was the feet's odd concentration in the Pacific Northwest. Changes in the sneaker industry were worldwide. It's not as if they only sold ethylene vinyl acetate in Vancouver or Seattle. The answer is perhaps the most surprising revelation in this entire investigation. Washed-up sneakers with human skeletal remains are found all over the world. This was one of the things that Shane Lambert, the originator of the 2004 tsunami theory, got right. In psychology, this phenomenon is known as the vicious cycle effect. When the story of disarticulated feet first arrived on the Pacific Northwest, it was presented as a shocking first-time event. No one had heard of this before, and it captivated the Internet, then the world. It then became very common for anyone walking a Pacific Northwest shoreline to hunt for washed-up sneakers. Locals were even known to swim out into the water searching for remains. It's very likely the high discovery rate is simply the result of a crowdsourced search. As it turns out, this same phenomenon has been found on beaches all over the world. It just isn't reported in the same way. Gail Anderson explained to Outside Magazine, I've spoken to a colleague in New Zealand who said, oh, we get 15 feet in runners every year. We still cannot definitively say how these people ended up in the ocean. But we can say with certainty that this mystery is a perfect example of how our perception shapes reality, that what strikes us as odd may not be unheard of, and just because it's gruesome doesn't mean there's a sinister explanation. Science seems to have solved how the disarticulated feet washed ashore, but maybe this story can open our minds to the shocking and strange things happening around us. And if we start looking, maybe we'll find more of them.
thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the mystery of the Pacific Northwest feet, amongst the many sources we used, we found articles from Outside Magazine, Vox, and CTV News extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Garland, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>